I typically swim four mornings a, a week at nearby Hillcrest Pool. And since emerging out of the pandemic, I've sometimes wondered if certain people are going to come back to the pool. Miki Matsumoto was one such person. Uh, Miki, I was thinking, must now be in his early 80s, but he is fit, energetic, and has a bright spirit. And I figured that he would be coming back. But then last month, on a Saturday morning, I received a phone call from his daughter, Sharon. And Sharon told me over the phone that on the previous Friday, her father had died. She explained that Mickey had been taking the garbage out in December and collapsed because of some heart-related issue and then got a pacemaker but never quite fully recovered. And then this past Friday, she was saying, he, he died. Mickey lived just a few blocks from our home. He loved our golden retriever, Sasha. In fact, when we were traveling from time to time, he would take care of her. Mickey and his wife, Linda, would be present at our church on Easter Sunday for Christmas service and fairly regularly at other times of the year as well. After Sharon called me and let me know her dad had died, I obviously don't anticipate seeing him at the pool anymore. When Jesus was crucified on that Friday, even though he had been talking about his death and his rising again to his students, apparently it didn't sink in because no one was anticipating that he would rise. No one was camping out near the cave that served as his tomb. No one was envisioning him sitting up a few days later after dying and, and then standing and walking out of that cave. In fact, when Jesus was crucified, almost all of his followers fled and went into hiding, afraid for their lives. They realized that it would be dangerous to be associated with someone who was considered a terrible criminal because of the way he was executed, a threat to the Roman Empire. Scholars tell us that in or near the time of Jesus, there were about 10 so-called Messiah candidates, people who had stood up and declared that they were the savior for the people of Israel. They were the one who would free the Israelites from the iron-fisted rule of Rome. But those 10 Messiah candidates were all killed by the Roman government or by some rival faction. And when they were killed, their movements also died and they ended up searching for some kind of dead Messiah support group or something like that in the ancient world. When Jesus was nailed to that cross, his followers figured, we've been following the wrong guy and they were crushed. In the Gospel of John chapter 20, we read that early on the first day of the week, 
while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, not to be confused with Mary, the mother of Jesus, but Mary Magdalene, who was a woman with a troubled past whom Jesus had helped find healing and wholeness and had become a close friend of his. While it was still dark on that first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, went to the cave that served as Jesus' burial place. And she noticed that the one to two ton stone that covered the mouth of the cave had been rolled away and her heart sank because she figured that grave robbers had taken away his body. And so Mary is standing outside the cave, weeping, grieving deeply. She bends down, looks inside, and she sees two beings dressed in white. They're angels. One where Jesus' head had been, the other where his feet had been. They look at her and they say, woman, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken my Lord away and I, I don't know where they have put him. Mary turns and she sees Jesus but doesn't recognize him. Perhaps because of her vision being blurred by her tears or because Jesus looks somewhat different after he is resurrected, she thinks he must be the gardener. And he asks her, why are you crying? And she says, if you've taken his body away, tell me where you've put it and I will go and get him. And then this person simply says, Mary. And when he says her name, and she recognizes this familiar voice. It's like her world turns. In a split moment, her eyes are opened and she recognizes Jesus, that he's alive. And she goes from being downcast to overjoyed, from being deflated to elated. When she hears her name spoken by him, she feels known and loved. When I was pursuing graduate studies in the San Francisco Bay Area, I got to know a physician named Tom Boyce, who was a working doctor, but also on the faculty of UC Berkeley's medical school. Tom described how he had come across a young boy patient named Blake with a disfiguring terminal disease called mucolipidosis. Tom said that this boy's eyes were clouded and they protruded, as did his tongue, like the overstuffed contents of a pastry shell too small to contain them. His gums, which surrounded his bloated peg-like teeth, were also swollen and often bled. This, quote, grotesque, Tomato of a boy turned away even the most forgiving eyes. And when a doctor or a nurse tried to offer medical care that didn't help, Blake reacted with angry, incoherent grunts, grunts, and would flail his arm, which meant, get out of my face. Tom said, I was delayed at the hospital one day, and so that night... I approached Blake's room at an unaccustomed hour. And as I did, I saw that his 
single young mother who worked during the daylight hours was sitting on the edge of his bed, deeply immersed in conversation with him. Tom said, I was transfixed by the scene. She spoke to him, her son, in comforting, hushed tones, asking him about his day, about his new nurse, and sharing about her own day at work. And then this single young mom leaned over and she stroked her son's hair in a mundane gesture that filled the room with love for her son. Tom said, Blake's eyes were moist and they were utterly devoid of his stern resistance. He looked up at his mom and he seemed to absorb every piece of her presence. He seemed to melt into her eyes. And his mom took her hand and gently stroked his face, his swollen round face, and said, oh, my beautiful boy, my beautiful boy. Blake was visibly changed by his mother's love. And when Mary encountered the risen Christ, she was also visibly changed by his love for her. And when we encounter the risen Christ and he calls us by name as he does, we can also be changed. I've been changed by that love and you can be too. So as Mary encountered the risen Christ, she felt known, she felt loved. And when she realized that Jesus, who had died on the cross, was now alive, her fear of death, whether conscious or subconscious, would have been gone. I mentioned earlier that when Jesus was crucified, almost all of his followers fled and went into hiding, afraid for their lives. But when they saw Jesus radiant and risen from the dead, they also felt loved, as Mary did, and they also overcame whatever fear of death that they had. In fact, almost all the original disciples of Jesus, with one exception, voluntarily died a martyr's death for their belief that God had raised Jesus from the dead, knowing that God could also raise them from the dead. And when we encounter the risen Christ, we will feel loved, we'll feel cherished, we will also overcome our fear of death. In the wake of my own mother's passing, a year or so ago last summer, I reread a book by Dr. Eben Alexander, a neurosurgeon who served on the faculty of Harvard Medical School for 15 years. Dr. Alexander said that when patients, people, described a, quote, NDE to him, a so-called near-death experience where they were caught up in a tunnel of light and came into the presence of God, he always dismissed those experiences as simply fantasies produced by a brain under extreme stress. And then, Dr. Alexander's own brain was attacked by a rare illness, E. coli bacterial meningitis, which shuts down the part of our brain that produces hallucinations. And he went into a coma 
for seven days. And during that time, he entered into this other world that was far more vivid and real to him than this world. It was full of light and stunning beauty. He said it was like I had been in a dark movie theater and stepped out into a gorgeous, sunny, clear, warm afternoon and wondered why I had been cooped up in that theater for the afternoon. He said this, this new world was full of joy. Jesus was there. He felt loved and cherished. And while there, he was guided through this new vivid place by a girl whom he did not recognize. After seven days of being in the coma, the doctors were thinking about pulling the plug on him, removing medical supports because, well, he was on the verge of death and also because they realized that if he were to survive this, he would experience, have extreme brain damage. But on day seven, without any forewarning, Dr. Alexander opened his eyes and achieved full brain recovery, a kind of medical miracle. Dr. Alexander was adopted, and when he was 53 years old, he made a connection with his biological family of origin for the first time. And in 2007, he learned that he had had a younger sister named Betsy who had died, whom he had, of course, never met or seen. He had his coma, his recovery, and after recovering, one of his biological sisters happened to send him a photo of his younger sister whom he had never met. And when he looked at the photo, he recognized her as the girl who had led him through heaven. And so based on his powerful experience, he began to study the NDEs or the near-death experiences of others and is now convinced that there is life beyond death. He's no longer afraid of death. He values life on earth even more because of his experience, but he's no longer afraid of death. If you want to find out more about his story, you can read Proof of Heaven by Dr. Eben Alexander, a neuroscience, uh, neurosurgeon's journey into the afterlife. When Mary encountered Christ risen, she felt loved and cherished. She was no longer afraid of death. And so it will be for us when we encounter Christ risen, we will feel loved, we will feel known, we will not fear death. After Mary heard her name being uttered by Jesus in the garden, she embraces Jesus and says, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus responded by saying, don't hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to my Father. What did he mean by that? Before dying, Jesus taught his students that he would rise again. They didn't quite understand that, or that didn't sink in, as I mentioned. And he also said, I will then ascend to my Father, and I will send you my Spirit, my Holy Spirit, so that my presence can be with you, my love and peace, always. So Jesus wasn't saying to Mary, don't cling to me, I 
will not give you my presence. He was saying, don't hold on to me. Let me ascend to my Father so I can be with you and those who belong to me always through the presence of my love and my peace. And then Jesus says to Mary, go and tell my brothers and sisters that I have risen, that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary, in this moment, is the first person in the world who knows that God has raised Jesus from the dead. She is what we might describe as the first Christian, though that term wasn't used at that time. And she also will become the very first messenger of the greatest news ever, that God has raised his son Jesus from the dead. Scholars point out that if this account in the Gospels was simply fiction, simply something that was fabricated by the writers, they would not have portrayed Jesus, risen from the dead, appearing first to a woman in this first century patriarchal world because in this ancient prejudiced world, women's testimonies were not considered admissible evidence in court. If the writers of of this account were simply making this up out of their imagination, they would not have portrayed Mary as the first messenger of the good news that Jesus had resurrected because women hardly ever served as messengers or couriers of important news in this time. No, the reason the gospel writers described Jesus as appearing first to a woman was because he appeared first to a woman. It's just as simple as that. And it may well be that he appears to a woman who happens to have a troubled past, who was not the leader of the community, but a supporting member of it because he wants us to know that no matter what our background, no matter what our past, no matter what we have or have not done, Christ can come to us, call us by name, and use us for God's purpose in the world. Over spring break, I read a novel by John Green, a young adult novel called The Fault in Our Stars. This novel features a teenage girl named Hazel Grace, she's 16, and a teenage boy named Gus, age 17. They both have cancer. They meet in a youth cancer support group and they fall in love. Gus, the 17-year-old, is a handsome, charming teenager. He was once a great basketball player for his high school, but then was diagnosed with a rare kind of bone cancer. And so he had to have one of his legs amputated. Gus loves to play a video game called Counterinsurgents in which he seeks out children in war zones to rescue them. His girlfriend Hazel Grace asks him, Gus, why do you save children instead of yourself? And Gus responds with passion by saying, maybe I can buy them just a minute, but perhaps that minute turns into an hour, which becomes a year. No one is going to buy them forever, but that minute, that hour is not nothing. Gus is the kind of young person who believes his life has meaning if he can lay it down for someone else, if he can serve someone. Gus's cancer was in remission. He says, my cancer has an 85% cure rate, but then it came back and metastasized 
And one morning, Gus realized that he had peed his bed and he felt great, great self-loathing. And then he told his girlfriend, Hazel Grace, it's kid stuff, but I always thought my obituary would be in all the newspapers that I'd have a story worth telling. I always had this secret suspicion that I was special. Hazel says, you say you're not special because the world doesn't know about you, but that's an insult to me. I know you. Frustrated, Hazel Grace says, I just want to be enough for you, but I can never be. There can never be enough for you. But this is all you get. You get me and your family in this world. This is your life. I'm sorry if it sucks, but you're not going to be the first man on Mars, and you're not going to be an NBA star. Gus desperately wants to leave a mark on this world, but he realizes that he will only leave a scar. He realizes that his death will be a casualty in the ancient inglorious battle against disease, and his death will hurt others like he's a grenade going off. But even if we, one of us, end up being the first person to walk on Mars, or if we become a star in the NBA, or to contextualize for Canada, a star in the NHL, or rescue a child in an actual battle situation, if we are just soulless molecules, the result of blind evolutionary forces, and if in a thousand years or 250,000 years, there are no more human beings left, and scientists tell us that our species does have a temporal range, then even if our work feels meaningful now, it will ultimately be meaningless. But, but, if God in fact raised his son Jesus that first Easter from the dead, and if he will one day renew our world, then even if our work doesn't feel very glamorous, even if it doesn't feel overtly heroic, even if it is as every day as teaching a child to read, or lessening the pain of someone through medical care, or bringing love to an elderly person, or sweeping out the hall of some place to make it clean, or preserving the planet in some way, or bringing some kind of beauty into the world through music, art, or some other craft. Our work matters. It really does. Because it will somehow, in some way, even if it's driving an ambulance, make its way into this new world that God, the gardener of all things, is creating. When Mary saw Jesus in the garden, she thought, ah, the gardener. In a way, she was wrong, but in a way, she was right. Because she was looking at the gardener of a new creation. Some of the people 
who have contributed the most to the world, like Desmond Tutu, Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa, and countless people whose names you've never heard and whose obituaries you will never read, were inspired in their work in the knowledge that God, as the ultimate gardener, was making this world new. Mary was looking at the man who was God the gardener, who would take the disorder and chaos of the world and bring order and beauty. The gardener who would replace the thorns and the weeds of our world with flowers and cherry blossoms, as we're seeing here in our city, and rich harvests. If God is the gardener of new creation, it means that you are seen and loved and cherished by your creator. It means that you no longer need to fear death because death has been defeated. You will see your loved ones again. Sharon and her sister Caroline and their mom Linda will see Miki Matsumoto once again. And it means that ultimately you will not leave a scar but a mark that will make its way into this new world that God the gardener in Jesus is making new. And that, and that is why we celebrate. Let's pray together. If you want, you can turn to the living God, to Jesus who comes to you now. And if you want to respond by prayer, you're welcome to do so. You can pray something like, Jesus, I receive your love. I receive the forgiveness of sins that you offer me, made possible through your death on the cross. I receive your life. I receive your purpose for me. If you want, in this moment, on this Easter Sunday, you can receive Christ, the Christ who sees you and who calls you by name. Amen.